So today we're talking about, as I said, forgiving yourself. It's one of the most challenging psychological realities that there is. And the theme, I would say, for this is how we treat people differently than we treat ourselves. Um, and, how, and I want to focus on how people go off track and into different snares that the enemy creates. Now, the, the scripture, the main scripture for today is Psalm 103:14, For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. I'm going to tell a story that's based on reality. The story um, is of a woman, and uh, she went to the mountains of Costa Rica with her daughter. And her daughter was, um, you know, around 12 years old. Let's just say she was 12. And they went to Costa Rica. They were excited about kind of adventuring down there. But when they got there, it was raining. And if you know, like, the rainy seasons in places like that, oftentimes it rains during the day and then it stops at night. Well, when they went there, it was raining all the time, which was surprising even the local people. The local people were like, this is unusual. There's, like, more rain than is typical, even for kind of the rainy time that they were in. And so they were stuck inside all day, not just kind of like during a few showers during the middle of the day. And, um, and it was heavy rain. Uh, it wasn't just kind of like misting all day. It was really, really a lot of water that was coming down. So they were totally stuck in their hotel. Then after a few days, I think it was three, they came out of their hotel and they were excited about exploring because they hadn't been, they were really pumped. And so they went down, um, down some paths and they went to this really steep ravine where the hills were, like I just said, it was quite steep on both sides and the trees, and it was just beautiful, and there was a small river at the bottom. And they kind of zigzagged down into the ravine, uh, hiking down. And, I mean, this was a well-worn path. Like, this was, you know, a somewhat touristy area, I guess you could say. And uh, so, at the bottom, they saw the river, and there were, like, these rocks that were natural. They weren't placed there by anybody, but they were natural in the water, and they, you could kind of walk from rock to rock. And it was a really cool formation. People really liked walking on these rocks. And so they had actually set up even ropes to help people because, you know, if you have a lot of people doing things, people get hurt. So, I mean, you could do it without the ropes, but they had even set up ropes in the water um, uh, in, on uh, like staffs that had been dug into the, into the uh, river so that people could walk a little bit more safely. And so they were really excited about this. And the water was kind of coming, and it was kind of white and swelling, and it looked really exciting. So they went in, but it was a little slippery and wet. So they went back um, onto the shore, and they took off their shoes and their socks, and they got themselves a little bit ready because they were getting splashed. And then they went back out again onto the water, well, onto the rocks on the water. And uh, it was kind of fun, and the water was splashing more and more, and it was, uh, they were actually kind of up into their ankles as they were uh, going from rock to rock, but they knew where to go because they had the ropes. And um, it was a lot of fun. Then all of a sudden, it wasn't really all of a sudden, it was just that all of a sudden they noticed that it wasn't around their ankles anymore. And it was now up around, just above their ankles. And it doesn't take a lot of water moving quickly over your feet to realize how quickly that pressure builds. And the rocks are already slippery, which is why they had the ropes. So just a little bit of pressure, and all of a sudden you're really having trouble standing up straight. Especially if you're 12. So they were really hanging onto the ropes, and the mom said, you know what, we've got to go back. This is now getting kind of scary. It's not so fun anymore. It was exciting. 
And so she said, let's get back to the shore. But they'd already gone out a fair way. And so they turned around, and they were heading back, and they were holding onto the ropes. And they got to the point where they were really, like, hanging onto the ropes. They couldn't really get their feet onto the rocks anymore because it was so slippery. And so they were hanging on. And the mother looked back at her daughter, and her daughter was there, and she was, like, hanging on. She said, she yelled, hang on, hang on, let's go. So uh, the daughter was hanging on. And then all of a sudden, uh, it was still getting higher. It was basically almost up to their knees now. And they couldn't really move quickly anymore because they kept on getting swept off their feet, so they were having trouble getting back to shore. They were getting fairly close, but they weren't quite there yet. And they were pulling on the rope so hard that actually one of the rope holders uh, gave way. And all of a sudden, now the ropes were lower. And so to hang on to the ropes without having good footing, they were actually now in the water, hanging on to the rope with the, ro- with the water coming at them very hard. And the mother uh, was hanging on you know, really hard. She was a really fit uh, woman. Um, she liked to do these adventure things, and so she was quite strong. So she was able to hold on as the water came at her, but she was having trouble breathing because she had trouble getting her head out of the water now. And she was getting banged around. She didn't really feel it um, because the water was, uh, was fairly warm. But by this time, you know, there were panic responses in there. And she was trying to pull herself forward. And then because all the water that was now coming was basically a flash flood. The water was coming harder, and the water itself was like breaking down these um, supports that were holding the rope. So every once in a while, um, when, as they were pulling on the rope, they would get, fall back into the water, like not fall back because they were already in the water, but like go farther downstream as, they, as the rope gave way, and they had to go um, even farther pulling on this rope to get back to the shore. And she couldn't see, she couldn't hardly breathe. Uh, she was barely hanging onto the rope. And um, she was about to let go, and the rope gave way again. And she went farther downstream with the rope in her hands. She wasn't having to hold onto it because it was just flying with her. And um, she actually hit a rock, and her back hit the rock as she went downstream. And um, basically saved her life because the rock kind of was like large enough behind her that she hit the rock hard and it hurt her. But uh, she was able to kind of sit there, and it didn't, she didn't slide off of it one way or the other, and her head was now propped up and just out of the water. She, could, she was still having a lot of trouble breathing, but she could rest because the water was coming at her. She regained herself a little bit, and then she looked to the shore, and there was somebody there who had heard her screaming at different points. And, uh, you know, they were able to get her out using the ropes and coming a little bit into the water, and it took a while, but they eventually got her out of the water. And she was okay. And then she came to herself, and she looked around, and she said, where's my daughter? She had forgotten her. She had forgotten her daughter. Her daughter had actually survived. Her daughter had been pulled out before her, because of that person who was on the shore. And had, when the ropes had gone farther down, she had been swept a little bit closer to the shore, and the person, the guide, who had been taking another group down through the ravine, had been able to pull her out. But as she talked to me about this, because she had come to counseling, um, as she was talking to me about this story, she was racked with guilt, overwhelmed with guilt. Even though her daughter had survived, there was a, a significant period of time where she had forgotten about her, where she wasn't thinking about her daughter, where she was just thinking about her ability to get out of this water herself. 
and her daughter hadn't even crossed her mind during all of that time. They said it was a miracle that she had survived. She was in really rough shape. Um, her clothes had been uh, you know, ripped, and um, some of it had been lost. She had, uh, she, her hands had been bleeding. Her arms had been bleeding from where the ropes had rubbed on her arms and her, on, on her body. She had rope burns down her side, and she had lots of bruises and cuts from the rocks. She really had almost died in the water. One of the things that people mix up is the difference between responsibility and what a word that they use in the, in the courts, which is culpability. Now, I don't know, who here has actually heard the word culpability before? Okay, we have a few, okay, that's good. Basically, it means blameworthy. So just because you're responsible for something, even a horrible thing, doesn't mean that you're blameworthy for it or that you should be punished for it. So oftentimes the words that go around culpability are like negligent, if you're negligent or something like that, then maybe you are culpable. So I'll give you an example just to kind of illustrate a little bit more clearly than the water in the ravine. If I was driving down the road and I um, hit a dog, oh, this, there's maybe, this has happened, so maybe I'll use another one. If I'm driving down the road and I hit a, a deer, people are a little less attached to that. So I hit, I hit a deer uh, and um, I'm responsible for hitting the deer. Nobody else was driving. I hit the deer. Clearly responsible. No argument with that. But are you culpable? Culpable will be determined by were you speeding? Were you driving to the conditions? Were you drinking? If a deer just jumps out from behind a bush and you didn't see it and you hit it, that doesn't mean you should have a fine or, or even in your own conscience should be um, held, like held uh, blameworthy for that, that you did anything wrong. This lady, when she was holding onto this rope, was not culpable. She was responsible for forgetting about her daughter. I mean, who else forgot about her daughter? She did. She's responsible for that. But that doesn't mean she did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that she's culpable for it or blameworthy for it. And people mix this up all the time. Because they typically, in our English language, we use responsible for both culpable and simply the person who's actually responsible for it. We mix them up. You are human. And this is what I told that lady. You're human. Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Your brain is an organ. We talk about the spiritual reality of being a human being, and that is so true, but your brain is an organ, and without a spiritual intervention, it has limitations. Uh, you can't ask your brain to do what it can't do, unless, of course, God intervenes. Now, if this lady was God, and she knew what was going to happen, and she knew all of these things, that would be, be a bit of a different story. But she couldn't do everything. She's made of dust. She's a human being. Now, when you experience trauma, when you have something that's really horrible that's happened, especially somebody, to somebody who's close to you, our brains will often blame ourselves in an illogical way. We will think of all of the different connections we had to that situation, all of the different things that we could have done differently. 
we will connect ourselves with that and we will blame ourselves, we will, call it, we will put ourselves in prison over what happened, even though we know sometimes that it's illogical. It's a form of pride. It's a form of pride. If you consider yourself to be more than you are, that's pride. You are not more than you are. You are made of dust. God knows it. And when he judges us, I hope and I know that he will take that into account. But unfortunately, we don't treat others the same way we treat ourselves. It's very easy for us to take this story of the lady or the deer and be like, yeah, that person's not culpable. They shouldn't go to prison for that. It's sad and we understand it. But when it happens to us, our pride kicks in and we think, I should be a better mother. I should be a better driver. I should be able to see these things in advance, but I don't and I feel horrible. I wish that there was something we could do. It's also fear. If I can control things and prevent things from happening, I don't have to be afraid of the future. But ultimately, it's pride. We need to realize what we are. It's not a nice thing to tell somebody, hey, you're made of dust. You have limitations. You're not superhuman. But it does set you free. It sets you free because, yes, we are blameworthy sometimes, but oftentimes self-blame is simply a matter of realizing our human limitations. And we need to set ourselves free from holding ourselves blameworthy for things that we simply aren't blameworthy for. We are not God. That's the first one. There's a significant portion of self-blame that's just illogical. And we need to realize that we're just human. The second one is more complicated. What if you are blameworthy? What if you do fall in that culpable category? You are culpable. I think we're all culpable of some things here. So we're all left with this position of, oh my goodness, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. Can I, um, how do I live with that? Especially, uh, people do have trouble with the significant past, like, or the distant past, especially if it's really, really hard. Like if it's really big thing, like you, I've, I've been in prison, I've talked with murderers, you know, they talk about this, they can't let it go, right? They can't let go of this self-blame. They're totally culpable. They're totally blameworthy, but it's difficult. But we have most trouble when we do something repeatedly, when we have a pattern in our life that we can't stop. We do it again and again and again. I'll tell you a story, not in detail, as detail, but this is just such a common one. I'll talk about the, the angry husband. Yelling at his partner, getting angry with his partner, saying horrible things. Maybe regularly, weekly, more than once a week. And during the time in between those episodes of anger being racked with guilt. Knowing that he doesn't feel that way in reality when he has his faculties about him. He doesn't feel that angry. He doesn't want to say those horrible things. In his past, he grew up with a family that avoided emotion. Let's say. Isolated emotionally. One of the best ways to isolate yourself emotionally is to drink. Maybe his dad drunk, drank. Alcoholic. His mother didn't want to deal with it, so closed off from the family. She could see what was happening to her children. And hated it. And at the, at the end of the day, she had to distance herself from the whole thing. She tried her best. But she couldn't stop it. Didn't stop it. Avoided the feelings herself. So he grew up in this family with everybody who was avoiding emotions, and so he did the same. He got angry. He got angry with his dad when his dad was mean to his mom. 
It was the safest feeling for him. Anger is the safest feeling we have. If you're going to feel a feeling and you don't want to get hurt, feel anger. If you're going to go to war, you don't want to feel sadness or anxiety. You want to feel anger. It protects you. Some people argue whether anger is actually a true emotion because there's always, almost seems to always be a feeling behind it that's actually causing you to be angry. So is there such a thing as pure anger? It's kind of theoretical. I don't know. Usually it's a feeling like fear or sadness that ends up producing the anger. For this client, it was a fear of intimacy. He actually had now a wife who he loved. He couldn't understand why he would get angry, but he actually loved her, and she actually loved him. It was terrifying for him. There's nothing as terrifying as a person who's actually close to you. How could uh, this person, I mean, he was an angry person. He looked at his life in terms of strength and, you know, the macho machismo. How could this person, who he saw as weak because she was a woman and she didn't have that macho veneer, be so scary? It didn't make sense to him when I would say this to him. How could she be scary? Well, just imagine it this way. Imagine somebody actually was holding your literal heart. They don't need to be that big. If they actually have their hands around your heart, all they have to do is squeeze a little bit. When you're vulnerable to somebody, when you're super close to somebody, it's terrifying because they could hurt you like nobody else. And for him to actually have that desire, he wants to be close, everybody wants to be close, but when he would feel that closeness, when he would feel her coming in close to him and feel like good about it, it would send him into anxiety. What if she hurt him? What if she did something like other people did, like his mother did, like his father did, and he would become angry, which was a way of pushing back and putting her at a safer distance. And he would repeat this pattern again and again. I'm going to tell you somebody that sounds like this man, this angry husband. Romans 7, verse 15. For I know what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then, I do what I not do. I, sorry, this is Paul. He kind of gets tough to read sometimes. If then, I do what I will not to do. I do what I don't want to do. I agree with the law that it is good. But now... It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is the flesh, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Now, if that was hard to understand, you're in good company. Uh, there's a scripture, Peter's talking about Paul, and he says that letters were hard to understand. So Peter's even having difficulty with it. So uh, don't feel bad. You have to sip Paul sometimes. You can't just drink him. You have to kind of go line by line and just let it settle in your spirit. And even then it can be challenging. Basically, though, he's saying, I'm doing what I don't want to do. And I'm really frustrated with that. And who does that sound like? That sounds like the angry man with his wife. He just keeps doing this pattern that he doesn't want to do. So this man's in good company. 
And it's probably all of us who are in that situation sometimes. I know I am. Now, there's one part in the scripture that I read, and you probably missed it with the complexity of how he writes it. But he says, and I'll read it again. Now, if I do what I will not to do, so if I do what I don't want to do, this is the interesting part, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Isn't that interesting? It's no longer me. I'm not wanting to do it. So it's no longer me. It's the sin that dwells in me. I read that to Natasha last night. She said, are you sure you want to say that in the church? (laughs) It's like, do you want to read the Bible in church? (laughs) You sure you want to read the Bible? That part of the Bible? Sounds like he's trying to get out of responsibility. Sounds like he's shifting the blame, trying to feel better. Now, if it's if I do what I don't want to do, paraphrase a little, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. It's not me, it's the sin. It's Paul avoiding responsibility. Now, normally when I see that people avoid responsibility, they start to feel better. They start to become unconcerned. It's not my deal, it's you. You deal with it. That doesn't sound like Paul to me. At the end of this whole thing, he calls himself wretched in this situation. It's bothering him to no end. He is not at peace because he's living comfortably in denial about the situation. Sure, he shows the signs of being motivated to find somebody else to blame, but he's not comfortable. He's supremely concerned about this spiritual battle, and that's what he calls it. He calls it a spiritual battle between himself and the flesh. Now, psychology loves to split up ourselves into different categories, And so it's interesting to see that actually happen in the Bible. But I'll go with the biblical model of splitting ourselves into different realities. There is yourself, and then there is the flesh. Now, the flesh is not actually your body. So you've got to get that out of your head. Even though the flesh means the flesh, it's actually referring to the, uh, the influence of sin, the temptation, the pressure to sin. Not actually your body. You don't have to actually hate your arm. It's not your arm that we're talking about here. It's the impulse to sin. I could go more into that, but I, I won't for time. It's the, so it's him against this impulse that he finds in himself to sin. And he calls it the spiritual battle. It's this war between himself. Now, it's hard for us to think about ourselves that way. How could I be, can I just let myself off the hook where I'm not responsible for the bad things that I do? Is that even allowed? That doesn't sound like it's allowed. But I bet you do it for other people. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, the present, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in, heaven, in the heavenly places. When we talk about other people and we talk about the horrible things that they do, we say, you know what, we're not actually fighting against this thing. In the election, we're not actually fighting against people in the election. We're actually fighting against principalities, against authorities, against spiritual forces. Paul refers to this as a spiritual battle. So it doesn't, this isn't something to get out of responsibility where I can say, hey, it's not me, so I'll leave it to somebody else to deal with. He's saying, it's for me to deal with, but it's not me who did it. I have to deal with this, but I'm not going to take blame for this in the same way that you might think. I'm going to deal with it. I'm responsible for it, but I'm going to treat this as a spiritual war. So we don't get out of having to deal with it. We just treat it differently. He's not getting out of responsibility. He's just declaring his fight in a different way. He's not fighting against himself. 
He's fighting against spiritual realities. And isn't that the way it always is? We treat other people differently than we treat ourselves. When we talk about other people, it's like, wow, they're in a battle. They're in a battle against sin. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray against the principalities that are fighting against this person. But when we're in a battle, we blame ourselves completely, with no reference to the spiritual war. Now, I know some of you might, but typically we ignore that much more than we do for other people. Again, it's pride. I can take care of this. I'm alone in this. I'm the one who made the mistake. There's no spiritual force that's taking responsibility away from me. I can't let myself off the hook. Well, you don't, I don't want to let you off the hook, but I do want you to name it properly so that you can treat the enemy and that force in the proper way. You have to fight. You are responsible for this, but I want you to do it well. And I want you to name it the way Paul does. Okay. So we've laid out the battlefield. It's you, you've sinned, and there's the flesh, which we know now means this impulse to sin. So how do you win it? How do you win the battle? First, you understand it. Hopefully this helps. We're not in a fight against ourselves. We're in a fight against, a, against the flesh, against a spiritual force. I'm going to define the word enemy. When you think of the word enemy, typically you think of like Hitler, right? You think of like this, this worst, like a dictator. That's who we think of as we think about enemies. We kind of make them into this fictional, super nemesis, like from the Incredibles. Like it's like some like the Joker or something like that. The enemy, because that's how, you know, that's how it happens in the movies. The enemies are like big and bigger than life. I want to redefine that because if that's the enemy, then we'll almost never face an enemy because the Joker's not real. So how do you define the enemy? Well, if I was going to define the enemy, I would define the enemy as something that's getting, somebody that's getting in the way of your spiritual progress. Probably somebody who's sinning. And probably somebody who's sinning again and again and again. Right? So we have somebody who's causing a problem because they're sinning repeatedly. Does that make sense? As an enemy? I mean, we're supposed to love these people, right? Who do this again and again. So it's not like we're supposed to put them in this camp of the enemy like the devil where we're not supposed to love them. We're actually supposed to love them. But there's somebody who's sinned repeatedly over and over and over again. And who does that sound like? Let's think about Paul. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Paul. Somebody who sins again and again and again, and it's getting in your way. It's you. It's you. Now that sounds horrible. Did I just call you the enemy? Are you the enemy? doesn't fit with our idea of what the enemy is. Now, we could call the enemy the flesh, and that's true. But when he says to love your enemy, he's not saying love the devil. He's not saying go and love the demons. He's talking about people when he says love, the, love your enemy, right? He's talking about people and people who sin repeatedly again and again and again and get in your way. Things that can be redeemed. So in our, our battle here between Paul and the flesh, yeah, sure, the, the flesh is the enemy, but that's not the enemy that we're supposed to love because that's like a demonic force. So when we talk about Paul and the, and the enemy, like the, the flesh, 
Paul is also the enemy. He's getting in his own way. He's sinning repeatedly. He's a human being who's failing again and again. So that's the enemy that, that he's referring to when he says, love your enemy in Matthew 5. You have to love your enemy. Now, when somebody sins against us, again, we treat them differently. When somebody sins against us repeatedly, we're like, okay, that's our enemy, and we have to love them. That's not easy, but it's easier than loving ourselves when we sin again and again, and we get in our own way. So how do you battle for yourself? How does Paul battle for himself? He loves himself. You have to love yourself, even though you're getting in your own way again and again and again. He says, if you love your enemy, you will be perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect. If you love yourself, if you're kind to yourself, you will be perfect, because you're loving, and because it actually redeems you. You'll actually get better if you love yourself. There's research on, um, on exercise, you know, and people, uh, what helps you to exercise? It's very, like, it's a struggle, it's a battle. I keep getting in my own way. And they, people typically will shame themselves into exercise. And the magazines usually encourage you to do this too. It's like, you know, uh, make a picture of yourself now, naked, you know, and like stare at it when you're like working out and hate yourself, you know, and like you're going to be something different and, and I don't know, it's like shame-based exercise programs, right? Um, unfortunately, it's been shown in research not to help. It's actually if you love yourself, if you develop a good relationship between you and your body, that you'll actually exercise more. You'll actually treat yourself well with food, etc., if you love yourself. If you want to win the battle against yourself and all of your repetitive patterns, you actually need to be kind to yourself. You need to love yourself. This old sinner, boy, I love him, just keeps messing up. So how do you love yourself if you keep on doing these horrible things? Well, I'm going to say something interesting again, or at least contrary. Sin is actually quite helpful sometimes. I'm going to have to explain that a little bit. But sin is actually a solution. Uh, I'm not saying it's a good solution. I'm not saying it's the best solution. But it's often a solution to a problem. And it helps us in times. If you talk to people about their sin, they will, and you talk to them in the right way about it, it often was a solution to a problem that they had in their life. This man who was angry, why was he angry? Because he had a huge problem in his life, and his anger was the solution. It kept him safe in that moment. Why do people smoke? Why do people drink? Why do people go and have sex with everybody? I don't know. It's because it's solving an internal problem for them. And it's working to some extent for a certain amount of time, it's actually helping them. It's a solution. One of the things that you have to do if you're gonna love yourself is you have to understand yourself. You have to understand that you're doing your best and that this is actually a very tricky war. Because the sin that comes to ensnare us makes sense, at least for a certain amount of time. And especially if you're not even a Christian. For he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust. 
The patterns that you have in, your, in sin in your life were probably created when you were very vulnerable. When you were very vulnerable to lies and the enemy. Probably before you really understood yourself well. Probably when you were a child. They were the snares that encaptured you and solved your problems. They were the solution that was present when you didn't know any better. And now they stay there. They've ensnared you. And it's a battle. It's a spiritual war to learn better ways and to ask for the Spirit's help to actually overcome it. Talking to this man, he hates his anger so much. And then he says, but isn't it your friend? Wasn't it your friend at a time? He's like, yeah, it was. It protected me. You were doing the best you could when you were eight. And you had nobody to tell you what the ways to do things. You were doing the best you could. Now there's a better way. We need to love you. We need to understand that you're dust. You are eight. When you learn this. And God knows that. His judgments are relative to our situation. They're not absolute. We don't have to meet a certain standard. That's why we're not allowed to judge. It's based on your experience, on your revelation. It's based on your history. So, when you sin, when you look at your sin, I want you to remember that just because you did something doesn't mean that you're blameworthy. That's the first one. You have to remember, just because you did something doesn't mean that you deserve punishment. Because sometimes you just didn't know. You didn't have the revelation. Sometimes you just didn't know that the, that the flash flood was coming. Sometimes your brain shut down in panic. Sometimes you did everything you could, but you didn't know enough to stop it. You didn't know that deer was going to jump out in front of you. And we need to realize who we are and who God is and know that we can't stop everything. We're just dust. The second one is maybe you did know. And we need to look at ourselves and realize that we're in a battle and that this is a tough battle. And that there are snares and hooks inside of us from a long time ago when we didn't know any better. And we need to understand ourselves and how sin is really tricky and sometimes works for a period of time. And we need to battle against the enemy and say, get away from me in order to overcome the sin that so easily ensnares us. And if we love ourselves, we're much more likely to actually have the mind of God because we're acting like God towards ourselves. We can love ourselves out of that sinful pattern rather than trying to shame ourselves out of it. We need to fight for ourselves just like we fight for other people. We need to love ourselves like we love other people. That's the command. We're so hard on ourselves. And we need to fight. We need to take responsibility, but we need to realize that there's a power out there that wants to destroy us. And that's who we're fighting against. Lord, I pray that you would give each person here wisdom, not only for themselves, but for other people as they go. Wisdom to be able to correctly discern the condemnation that can fall on us. The snares as we think about what we've done and where we've been and all the horrible things that have happened because of it. And to realize that we actually have an enemy. An enemy that wants to destroy us. And that's who we're fighting against. And us, yeah, we're an enemy too, but we need to love that enemy. We need to love ourselves into a better place. Lord, give us the power. Ooh, give us the power. 
There was an exclamation on that prayer. Give us the power. <laughs> Amen. Give us the power uh, to love ourselves. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.